0: Hello and welcome to Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Bronwyn Maddox. A Queen's speech without a queen. But was it a queen's speech without a theme? We're going to be cutting through all that pageantry to find out what the government's long list of bills, and it really was a long list, tells us about what Boris Johnson wants to achieve and whether he can succeed. Then we'll turn from legislation to the law, or the rules at least, so Keir Starmer has now joined the Prime Minister in waiting on the findings of the police. How big a problem could that be for the Labour leader? Well, joining me throughout today's podcast are two IFGers who've been following the whole thing, know every ritual of the big day. For a start, Senior Researcher Alice Lilly. Hi, Alice. Hi, Bronwyn. Thanks for being with us. And we've got as well IFG Programme Director Alex Thomas. Hi, Alex. Hello, Bronwyn. Very good to have you here. And I'm delighted to say that we've got as well the Guardian columnist and leader writer, Raphael Baer. Hi, Raph. How have you been?
1: I'm very well, thank you. And thank you for having me on the podcast.
0: Thank you very, very much for joining us. I've really, very much enjoyed your column this week, which we're going to come on to. Let's begin with then Tuesday's big show. So in the tradition, doors are slammed, crowns are carried in, bills are read out, and it's one of the, the centrepieces of our constitution. It's a theatrical site of the kind the world expects of Britain but it's also the moment where a government tells the nation what its priorities are going to be in legislation. That's in theory. So Alice, let's just begin with the basics. Um, Why does the monarch read out the government's views?
2: Well, it's really a reminder, I suppose, that actually there are different parts of our constitution. We have parliament and we have the House of Commons and House of Lords, and then we have the sovereign we have the monarch and it is of course Her Majesty's government that you know is is responsible for making policy and drawing up legislation in this country so really the queen's speech acts as this big moment where all the parts of our constitution come together and we are reminded of of how it is all supposed to work and it gives the government the opportunity to set out their plans their direction of travel for the year ahead so how did prince charles come to be reading out the queen's speech this was a really um, unprecedented moment, a word that we've we've used a lot the last few years. Um, it's not the first time that the Queen missed uh, the state opening of Parliament. She missed it back in the late 50s and early 60s when she was in the latter stages of pregnancy. But what was different this time was actually how her absence was dealt with. So previously, when the Queen has not been around, there's a sort of reduced ceremony where Parliament is opened by something called a Royal Commission. Instead, there was sort of special dispensation given to Prince Charles this week, uh, accompanied by the Duke of Cambridge, and he was able to stand in for the Queen and replace her and read out the speech on on her behalf. So I guess this was a big symbolic moment because this is, of course, the heir to the throne and the next heir to the throne who were were both there. So it it was something very new and distinctive that we were seeing. Mm. Does it still count as a state opening of Parliament, technically? So my understanding is that there has been quite a big debate going on in government and in Parliament this week on that very subject. And I think I think the point that we reached is that actually it does count as a state opening, but I think that's that's one that we'll leave to the constitutional historians of the future to decide, I think.
3: It's the most controversial thing you've ever said, Alice. <laughs> I
2: know, yeah, I'm going to get letters. We, we are really going to come on to the content of it, not <laughs> just the
0: form, <laughs> but the form at this particular point with the relations with the monarchy, the role of the monarchy, is, is so very...
2: Interesting. And uh, Alice, just finally, the uh, 38 bills, that is a lot, isn't it? It's a huge amount. Absolutely. Uh, particularly for this stage in the parliament. So we've, we've been back through the data. And this is the biggest Queen's speech, at least in terms of volume of content since 2005. And I think there has to be a real question there about whether the government genuinely believes that it can get all of these bills through in the next year, especially given where we are politically. So, maybe more of a wish list, Alex, what does this long list tell you?
3: Ah uh, It tells me that uh, I mean the, the government has a sort of basket of uh things it wants to achieve uh but without an overarching theme. I suppose that's the main message I'd take uh, from it. I mean, there was a lot of discussion. On the day and immediately afterwards, about cost of living and does this mean that we're on course for an emergency budget because there weren't any measures in in this? I mean, that's all obviously profoundly important to the way the country works and uh, uh, who uh, you know, and, and and how it affects real people's lives. But that's not really what the Queen's speech is about. So almost the government trying to turn this into a discussion about what. Uh, or inevitably having to turn it into a discussion about um, the economy and the cost of living, uh, meant that uh, uh, there wasn't really anything, any other sort of identifying theme underneath it. There were some, you know, important controversial bills that can control of ownership of Channel Four, how protests are dealt with, new rail um, legislation, and, and 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 so on. So there are there were sort of portents of the battles ahead, but they were quite kind of bitty. It was quite difficult to identify what the government's real sort of mission was in setting this out. Which, uh, to some extent, maybe it was inevitable, as I say, because of the cost of living uh, uh, focus. Um, but to to some extent, was sort of suggested um, uh, some of the uh, you know some of the kind of battles ahead.
0: Mm. So. Rafael, what did you make of this? You, you wrote this terrific piece in The Guardian, as as, um, as I said, uh, setting out what you thought it meant about the government's programme. Can, can you just take us through a bit
1: of that? Yeah, well, I mean, I think that the, the most important thing to remember uh, about this is that essentially Boris Johnson never really had a a driving purpose for getting into power other than a sense of his own overarching ambition and entitlement to be prime minister. Now, that sounds like a a sort of quite a spiteful thing to say. Uh, I mean, I think that's almost now sort of an established fact about the man. He he has a lot of vanity and he has a lot of ambition, but not a huge amount of principle. Um, And the vehicle by which he then got into office was the support for Brexit uh, and then delivering Brexit in the way that Theresa May had failed to do. Having achieved a majority and a large majority, uh, he he was then, you know, on the promise to get Brexit done. Uh, He then didn't really have very much to do beyond that. Now, the the pandemic made that sort of less of an issue because that was the obvious thing the government had to attend to. And then now we're suddenly in this situation. We've got to. There's the aftermath of the pandemic economically to deal with. Uh, There are some economic consequences of Brexit that are being sort of swept up together with that. There is a cost of living crisis, as you've mentioned, and. Really, it's now almost for the first time properly coming into focus, this question of, well, what is a Johnson government actually for? Uh, The answer to that that he has given on and off is this concept called levelling up. Um, which you know, you, you, I'm sure you've discussed before uh, on this podcast. We've all talked about it, trying to unravel. you know what Raphael? It means. We, we we have. Doesn't stop us doing it again. Okay, well, just, <laughs> I mean, essentially, look. The, 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 the I think the big structural problem you have here. I mean, part of it is the fact that the electoral coalition that Boris Johnson got into power with, um, you know, combined. Previously lifelong Labour voters, uh, traditional working class areas, sort of post industrial areas, uh, that would understand levelling up. You in, in I think pretty classically egalitarian terms, essentially they're feeling hard done by and they want more stuff. And then you've got the the classic more traditional Tory coalition. that's always voted to Conservative uh, in the in in the more in the southeast and the shires, uh, and they don't necessarily want to pay for levelling up. They don't see it as a redistributive. Proposition, and that's you know ultimately, Boris Johnson doesn't want to have to tax his uh, traditional base to pay for his new base, and so he has a problem in actually doing levelling up in in a sort of radical redistributive way. And he doesn't really have much else left, you know, any mm. other levers. You heard, so, just just exploring this contradiction,
0: which which which, which you're describing there. You had a, a phrase that really stuck with me, saying that the government was trying to cook up egalitarian ends with libertarian means. What what did you mean by that?
1: Well, yeah, I think ultimately, I mean, there's a there's a crueler way of putting it, which someone said to me once, which is that compassionate conservatism is social democracy for slow learners. You know that ultimately, <laughs> you know, that there is a the, the faction in the Conservative Party that traditionally decides the fate of leaders, uh, it, which is the. I I wouldn't I'm say orthodox Thatcherite but it's not even orthodox Thatcherite because Margaret Thatcher had you know Michael Heseltine in the cabinet doing actually um you know quite interventionist things it's this sort of post Thatcher uh, sort of iconography of what the Thatcher government should be all about which is entirely about fiscal responsibility and low taxes uh that that the, the Chancellor of the Exchequer Rishi Sunak is is very much part of that that's his preferred fiscal policy and so the economic levers to do something redistributive which is ultimately what leveling up means mm. economically are not available to this to this prime minister well, and you, Rafa, let me let me just stop you there because um we're getting in a bit of fascinating territory
0: but also it, 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 um territory i might dispute with you about whether whether leveling up is necessarily redistributive or that, that that's its prime primary engine or whether it's also about engendering growth in In different places. But Alex, Alex, I wonder if you come in on this, of whether there's been a lot of comment about um, whether there was much on levelling up and whether there was really anything that dealt with cost of living, inflation and so on. Is it fair to look to a Queen's Speech, which is a list of proposed legislation to
3: solve big economic problems like these? Yeah, I'll, I'll give you my classic answer, Bromin. Of course, which is yes and no. So, um, uh, no, no that, one, that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah <laughs> sorry, I, I know you love it. Um, uh, no, 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 it it, it isn't fair. isn't. I've been away for a few that, weeks. I forgot. <laughs> in that, uh, in that, it, it, in that, you know, of, of course, legislation is not going to suddenly transform the uh, economic circumstances of large numbers of people in the country. Um, a budget can do that. Even you know, even a budget. Obviously, ministers are uh, are constrained in 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 what they can do. But the the sort of yes bit uh, of it is that a government that had a really clear idea of what it wanted to do on levelling up, and also, I might say, on Brexit opportunities, could have put more substance into the Queen's speech about what they actually wanted to do. One of the notable things for me about the legislation was the levelling up, and I'm, I'm sort of caricaturing it a little bit, but not that much. The levelling up legislation and the Brexit opportunities legislation were both sort of frameworks for, you know, in future, we will be able to devolve power to do what we want to do. In future, we will be able to repeal uh, European uh, law when we don't want to uh, abide by it. So they were you know, potentially very important in terms of the way government works and the powers that ministers have to do things. But there wasn't a lot of policy content in them.
0: And Alice, there was quite a lot about the importance of parliamentary sovereignty, but then there were also plans to give ministers more plans to circumvent parliament. That was more about trying to control in a way what the Information Commissioner's Office um,
2: does. What did you, did you see a contradiction in this? It? Yeah, it's really striking this. So as you say, there was tucked away in the, the big old briefing notes that accompany any Queen's speech, um, talking about sort of Brexit opportunities. And as Alex has just mentioned, there was some talk about you know, enhancing the UK Parliament's sovereignty by making it easier to repeal or to change uh, kind of retained EU law in the UK. But then, about two bullet points below that in this documentation was also a reference to giving ministers more power to make legislation without having to use primary legislation. So, in other words, more power for the government to use secondary legislation. Now, governments of of all political stripes these last few years have generally made much greater use of secondary legislation across a kind of whole range of things. And one of the issues with that is that we know that ultimately Parliament's ability to scrutinise secondary legislation is something that is really quite constrained. If you want to actually look back at the last time that Parliament blocked a piece of secondary legislation from making it onto the statute book, you're looking back to the early 1970s. So that gives you an idea of how well those scrutiny processes are working in Parliament. So there really does seem to be this big contradiction between giving ministers more powers on the one hand, but also talking about the importance of of parliamentary sovereignty on the other. Hmm. Well, thank you for that. And, Raphael, I I diverted you and us at the point where you were...
0: because, well no, you, eloquent, eloquent about, about what well, you said something is. you said something
1: very important, which was to correct me on the on the question of whether leveling up is egalitarian. I mean it isn't in the imaginations of a lot of the conservative ministers who think it should be about driving growth uh, and enterprise and various other things, but you know what that then raises as a question is how quickly can you reward the people who lent Boris Johnson their votes in two thousand and nineteen? he borrowed those votes from basically labour voters and they want payback quite soon. And what I sense this gets you onto the other bit of the Queen's speech that wasn't about levelling up, which is if there isn't going to be an economic story that the prime minister can tell the country in the next 18 months. which is anything other than I'm sorry, this is really hurting and we haven't got a plan to do anything about it. He ends up doubling down on cultural war issues, trying to change the subject uh, away from the economy uh, and uh, using what they, well, in Downing street, they call the sort of the wedge issues, things that will animate people's sense of, you know, why it is Boris Johnson is their guy and why, you know, awful labor with the sort of memory of Jeremy Corbyn in the background, uh, just to to represent them. And just just very quickly on this, that's why I think this, this, I mean, this Bill of Rights thing, you know, essentially trying to do to human rights law what Brexit was supposed to do to economic regulation, feels to me very important in this Green speech because it's actually, I think, ultimately a pretty pointless thing to be doing in a not very much parliamentary time, but something that will is bound to cause an almighty yeah. row.
0: And you've got several things in there. You, you, as you said, you've got the Bill of Rights, you've got the Channel 4 privatisation, which is divisive within the uh, Conservative Parliamentary Party, not just outside. Um, you, you have various other points about Brexit, but from what you were saying earlier, I just want to um, sort of capture that point that that we may have to look to the uh, the fiscal events in the jargon, the budget, um, uh, other other state budget-like statements, the two energy cap uh, statements now a year for some of the more economic measures that the government is do- doing, and and not um, not so much to this. Queen's speech. Alex, what did you make of the Brexit opportunity stuff? I mean, there was a fleeting reference to Northern Ireland and a pledge of um, support for the Good Friday Agreement and the institutions, but there wasn't really very much about the big row of the day, which is the protocol.
3: No, and that there was a sort of a bleak, I uh, suspect, extremely carefully worded reference in the actual speech itself to sort of maintaining the economic ties across the United Kingdom, which you have to look at in the context of the Northern Ireland Protocol and, um, uh, you know, as its opponents would argue, the economic <clears throat> disruption that it's uh, brought. Um, and obviously, that Comes in the context uh, of uh, the uh, Northern Ireland Assembly election results last weekend, where Sinn Féin uh, came came to the came, came to the top. So um, uh, I think there wasn't you know, there wasn't a lot new in the Brexit context, but I do think in in terms of the Northern Ireland um, protocol, uh, while the sort of text of the speech was quite heavily anticipated on that um there wasn't a lot in the speech but it was rapidly followed um on where are we uh, tuesday night um by um uh, a uh, press release from the foreign office where liz truss was upping the ante on this row over the protocol she b- both sort of put put out some pretty strong rhetoric about um, uh, about the problems caused by the protocol, you know, the the the, the uh, Foreign Office can today reveal uh, various problems with, you know, chilled sausages uh, uh, going uh, across the uh, across the Irish Sea. None of that was actually new. That was all entirely sort of baked into the deal that um, Boris Johnson uh, agreed. Um, but she did also critically indicate pretty strongly that the government's going to reject the easements on the protocol that the EU had offered last October. So that could, in the coming days, tip us into a crisis point there, or it could not, as has been or the case it could so often not. in the past, and, and we
0: may have to do a whole podcast just just <laughs> on that, including <laughs> whether whether the Americans uh, come in or invited in because they feel very very strongly uh, not just Biden's administration.
1: I mean it is sorry to interrupt it, but it yeah. is interesting that yeah you know, the the point of the queen's speech is to set out the government's agenda you know, legislatively and generally in terms of governance for the, for the coming year and and quite clearly the biggest thing that's going to happen almost immediately yeah. wasn't yeah. in it you know some legisl- legal instrument that rips up large part of the Brexit deal that Boris Johnson did only 2 years ago uh that it it, it sort of does slightly underline quite how much the sort of the dressing up box elements if of that's it.
0: quite fair, Raphael. Oh, if, in in me, whether, whether that, whether we are, uh, it, your description expects too much of the Queen's speech, which is a list of legislation. And just when you elided that into and setting out the whole government's agenda, there's all kinds of things that aren't in it, including the big, uh, and can't be in it in a way, including the big um, economic policies, including the big defence policies um we don't need legislation yeah. and um and 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 foreign policy of which northern ireland in terms of wrangling with the eu is 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 part so i um i th- i think what you've captured is the sort of slightly anticlimactic feeling that a lot of people have listened to this and think it's not really what's
1: going on but i Actually, yeah, what, no, okay, detract, I think that's not, I, I, not I sort sort of this, right. I this, not of retract my frustration, not the not, not my uh, frustration with the government in general. <laughs> all right, I've, got, I've got point.
0: Two, two serious points that are coming out of that. One is whether people's expectations of government are, um, is sense too too high, or what it can do in different ways are very very high at this point coming out of coronavirus. Let's just start with that, and then I am going to go finally just back to the uh, uh, the future of the Queen's speech itself. But two years of coronavirus, people have seen government do a huge lot of things alex just yes. this this eternal question of whether
3: people expect too much and um expect too little of government obviously the last I mean the last two years as you say have shown us that government can do extraordinary things and I was I was slightly checking myself in my own mind when I was saying earlier that you know fiscal events can't always sort of dramatically affect everybody's lives straight away I think that's you know that, 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 that we, we know that um, uh, the decisions of Chancellor's can, can have profound effects very very rapidly on people's lives so uh, it, it is a reminder of what government that was a reminder of what government can do um, but it's also uh, uh, you know there is a sense in which government can't Always act in that way, and there's a question about trade-offs. I uh, perhaps the last in a couple of years have uh, made us. Uh, less uh, comfortable talking about some of the trade offs. And this is also a government that, you know, have their cake and eat it, is not that comfortable in talking about trade offs. And when you get into these really difficult economic uh, uh, times, then a lot of it is about trade offs. We're trading off, you know, inflation and growth. We're trading off uh, employment and inflation. There, there, there are, there's a, uh, you know, I've just finished um, reading the Dominic Sandbrook's book about the early 19, uh, uh, 1980s and struck by how similar some of the debates that were happening then are uh, to the ones that we might be about to tip into. Uh, and, and there it was all about sort of which policies would, would succeed and which would fail and how you traded off different aspects of the, the economy. And I wonder if, if rather than the power of government, it's more about the choices that government make that we uh, we need to get into.
1: Raphael, what do you think of that? Um, I certainly that trade-offs point is absolutely crucial isn't it and you know there's a part of me that really almost gravitates inevitably back to brexit on this in the sense that the the, the fundamental ethos that drove the uk government's approach at least under Boris Johnson's stat was you know that you can have your cake and eat it and that difficult complex issues can just be sort of wished away I think Boris Johnson's leadership sort of is the he's sort of the incarnation of that ethos uh then to his credit, which is a phrase I don't use very often with regards to the prime minister you know when they tried to to deal with uh, you know, what they do call the health and social care levy, uh, raising national insurance uh, at the end of last year, seems to be at least be grappling with one of the very, very big hard questions, which is how you pay for an ageing population, how you pay for the backlog mm. in the NHS after mm. the pandemic. Actually sort of laying it down the line, like there, there are tough choices to be made, and already then very quickly a retreat from that at the, you know, in the spring of this year. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so my sense really there is, Ultimately, uh, I, I mean, it sounds like a partisan point. I honestly don't think it is. I think with the current prime minister, you will not get uh, the kind of political sophistication you need to lay on the line the kind of trade-offs that are required for the next few years. Yeah,
0: well, I should say the IFG is scrupulously politically well, I, neutral I, I, and we I, do
1: I, always give credit where it's where, where it's due. Um,
0: Alice, I wonder if you could take us into my second question. I um, was musing on Twitter that evening after the Green speech of about the fact that this is someone who's had many views, much more public than his mother, suddenly reading out what is the the programme of um, Boris Johnson's government. And I wondered whether you thought that this particular institution was going to hold in there or whether it was going to be changed.
2: Yes, I saw your Twitter thread and it it got me musing on the the same question, not least because I'd I'd also seen on Twitter earlier in the day somebody had... uh, put out an old piece that BuzzFeed wrote where they tried to explain the state opening of Parliament to Americans. And you can imagine how well that went. There's a lot of talk about kind of silly hats and the yeomen of the guard. And, you know, it, it does cause you to sort of reflect on these traditions and what they mean. And what's quite interesting as well about this year and about the way that Prince Charles was able to do it and this sort of important new precedent that's been set, is that it is a reminder that although this is a very, very old tradition, it's also a living tradition. It is one that evolves and changes. And so I think you're absolutely right to raise the question about what comes next.
3: Mm-hmm. I
2: suppose, and this this might just reflect my own opinion as somebody who spent an awful lot of time watching Parliament, I've possibly just become sort of slightly too used to its quirks. But where I do think there is a bit of value in the monarch or the monarch's representative reading out the government's program for the year ahead is this point about it bringing together all of those aspects of our constitution and we of course know that you know we live in a constitutional democracy we know that the monarch has no real kind of power to exert over over politics and over what the government does but at least in theory and in symbolism it is still the monarch's government, and I think actually being reminded of that on occasion mm. is something that's still valuable. So I suppose if you if you were to change that system, the question for me then is actually how would you still bring together all of those different aspects of the constitution? I I don't know the answer to that. No.
1: So I'll just fling in one little thing here. One thing that struck me watching it is although yeah Charles is. He's, he's the son and therefore younger. Having a man in kind of full admiral dress uniform doing it, covered in medals, looking sort of like the cross between an Edwardian gentleman and Mr. T, uh, I, it seemed to, for me, made it feel suddenly much more archaic uh, mm. than it did when really it, was, interesting it was an elderly image. lady. Oh,
0: yes, mm. as, as people felt indeed with Prince um, William's um, get-up in, the, in, the, in, the, in the, that famous Lambrover in the, in, the, in the Caribbean. It's not often at the IFG we've had the chance to write the words Prince Charles, but we have this week, and um, I guess a lot lot more of that discussion to come. Let's move at this point from the Constitution and the Queen's speech to that um, definite staple of these podcasts, which is parties, um, this time um, with the curry and beer question as well. And we we did have this this image on Tuesday, at the uh, opening of Parliament, with Boris Johnson and Keir Starmer walking through Parliament together. Um, now united, perhaps only by the fact that they are, are both potentially under investigation by the police. Well, definitely in Keir Starmer's case, and we don't know where the police have got to in the very long Downing Street investigations. Um, later that that day. Um, uh, on Monday, in fact, the day when Keir Starmer had been um, due to speak at the IFG, but then pulled out, he, he said he'd resign if the police do fine him. So Raphael, I mean, there's been a lot of comment on this. But at the end of this this week, what do you make of his move? Was it the best one available to him?
1: I think it was definitely the best one available to him and I think his mistake was was waiting as long as he did um before saying that I mean it's self-evidently I and think he does he does was, wait doesn't he and he discusses with wait. all
0: his colleagues I, on on yeah. lots and lots of things
1: yeah and I think I mean, the thing that struck me most about that press conference that he did when he said, which was actually blindingly obvious, really, which is that as someone who'd gone in studs up very hard on the prime minister for breaking the rules, if he was found to break the rules himself, his position would have been impossible, you know, untenable. So he could have said that, you know, 40 hours earlier. Um, What was interesting is that, you know, it really made me feel actually, yes, this is a man who seems to have two back feet and is always responding and reacting. Uh, And to see him do something that finally got him on the front foot, uh, you know, it was remarkable by its rarity, actually. And I think he definitely did the right thing. And that does seem more or less to to have shut it down. I think there's now a sort of a mutually assured destruction element in terms of arguing about this stuff between Labour and Tory MPs until more information is known. Uh, ultimately, another little simmering thing in the background, which is quite curious, is that it allowed a lot of people uh, on the Labour side to start indulging their fantasies over who might actually be a bit better at leading the Labour Party yeah, than yeah, Keir Starmer. Yeah, often
0: when the answer was myself, <laughs> yes, whoever, yes. whoever that was. Uh, <laughs> well, there were well, lots and lots of that. But Alex, I just, I mean, has just said, look, this shuts it down. But it doesn't, does it? Johnson is waiting on the the Metropolitan Police. Starmer's waiting on the Durham Police. Does, does it... Um, put unfair pressure on the police?
3: Well, oh, yes, on that, on, on whether it shuts it down, I think, I mean, I think Rafael's probably right in the very short term, which is that neither of the uh, leaders of the two main parties wants to talk about this uh, anymore. So, although, as we're recording, and I haven't caught up with the very latest, the um, Met police were saying they had issued some more fines over the last sort of days and, and weeks. So we'll see uh, this mail a light. Sorry, again, very quickly, very, interrupt them, but I can quickly, tell you yeah. that
1: immediately um, I saw a Lib Dem uh, sort of <laughs> press release appear in my inbox, and very much not a Labour one. Normally there, is, there is no suggestion at Tells
0: this point of recording that 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 those new fines include the prime minister
3: uh, but, uh no just, uh, so but, we don't we but, don't know yeah, who they so, include. yeah so in the very short term as as you know we've been just talking about for the last 25 minutes we're more likely to talk about you know legislation and uh politics as as, as usual if you like until the whole thing ignites again but but on your um uh, on your question about the police i do think it's pretty extraordinary that uh through a series of uh, uh events we found ourselves in the place where the Met Police and the Durham Police have the Sword of Damocles hanging over um uh the prime minister and the leader of the opposition i don't subscribe to the you know this is amping up unfair pressure on the the police i think you know they they, they need to do their job without fear or favor and you can't really blame keir starmer uh, or as for that matter boris johnson for um for how they've uh, how they how they've sort of um you know refer, referred this to or reacted to the, to the police um but it the fact that you know, a few police officers in durham hold the career of the leader of the opposition uh in their hands is extraordinary and uh, uh i think it leads to you know it's 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 almost become sort of administratively very very difficult it's, for it's the become very very
0: very 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 difficult as it was yeah. way for the, the met police but when you the cases aren't quite the same are they i mean you said the, 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 um, no. uh, johnson didn't hand it to the the police starmer did in a sense put that burden on the police by saying i will resign if they find me now over to you durham
3: Yes, I think that you know that that's fair, and obviously it, it works to Boris Johnson's advantage that that he hasn't done that at the moment. So again, we'll we'll see how it how it plays out. But the, I mean, uh, when, when sort of in the cold light of day after all of this, uh, uh, I think it, it it will be you know useful and appropriate to look at how the police approach these sorts of questions the um you know the rigor and the way that they've approached the fixed penalty uh notices uh, and how they sort of properly insulate themselves from uh political um, mm. pressure because uh, the, the the system it, it feels just it, I, i'm not sure there's a better answer i don't know there's a better answer but it feels unstable uh and uh and and the fact that to a greater or lesser extent, our two leading politicians have their career in the hands of a few police officers in London and Durham. Uh there's something's gone wrong there.
0: Um Raf, quick thought on that and then I want Alice to take us through some parliamentary I, I, I think it's
1: true that the, the that Keir Starmer's career is on the line. I, I would query whether Boris Johnson well, is going to be yeah. by this because he <laughs> yes. won't resign anyway. He won't resign. I mean, unless short of literally being put in cuffs and put in the back of a van and driven away from Downing Street, he's not going to resign if the police do anything. Mm. Um, he'll stay there until he's forced out.
0: Mm. So, Alice, you're beyond expert on these questions of of parliamentary <laughs> procedure <laughs> and who who actually has to do what at which which point. And we have this interesting point, don't we, about whether or not um either the politician has misled the Commons deliberately or or otherwise and perhaps you could take us into as well whether the um, leader of the opposition has is bound by different rules from the prime minister not being a minister
2: yes absolutely so as you say the leader of the opposition is not a minister and is therefore not bound by the ministerial code and it is the ministerial code which says that if any minister misleads the House and does so deliberately, they would always be expected to offer their resignation. That is not something that technically applies to the leader of the opposition. Although I think in the sort of pure politics of it, it would be incredibly difficult for the leader of the opposition or any senior front bench not to be held to the same standard. And the other thing it's worth saying is that Keir Starmer, Boris Johnson, any MP, is also subject to the MP's code of conduct, which includes those seven Nolan principles of public life, and to the parliamentary rules, which emphasise the importance of honesty and integrity, and in particular, of always correcting the parliamentary record at the earliest opportunity if you do get something wrong. So yes, Keir Starmer is still bound by some rules. And of course, he's he's not immune to the politics of all of this. And Ralph, really quickly, do you think
0: the Prime Minister has come out of this pleased at the week's progress? I mean, it was just a week ago we were talking about difficult local election results.
1: I think we'll, we'll be thrilled that the local election results were, were sort of blasted aside by the leader of the opposition being accused of doing exactly the thing that leader of, of, leader of the opposition had been accusing the prime minister of doing. You know, But the, uh, ultimately, that's part of a wider phenomenon, which is that Boris Johnson does seem to be extremely lucky. And as many people have told me over many years, never bet against that man in politics. You know, one day it'll come to an end, but uh, it, it's unwise to to gamble on things going wrong for Boris Johnson in the long term.
0: Okay, well, a point we'll also explore um, in the not long term, I'm sure much, much sooner than that. But with that, we're going to have to wrap up this episode of Inside Briefing. So my great thanks to Alex Thomas, Alice Lilly, and of course to Raphael Bear. Great to have you all with us as well. You can find all our podcasts at iTunes, Spotify, All major platforms do give us a review, a good one preferably, but we'll listen to whatever the electorate tells us. Don't forget to visit our website at instituteforgovernment.org.uk. We've got a lot there um, for you on the Queen's Speech, everything you need to know about standards in Parliament, the Northern Irish Protocol, levelling up, cost of living, lots of other stuff as well. You'll find all the details as well on the great events that we've got coming up, a really packed summer, levelling up covid the work of the Foreign Office, lots of big speakers. We're going to be back next week, and after that packed Queen's speech, we'll have no shortage of things to talk about. See you then.